Hi everyone, and welcome to Happy Paws, presented by FearFreeHappyHomes.com. Happy Paws is a podcast by pet lovers for pet lovers. We take a scientific and evidence-backed approach to helping you understand your pet on a deeper level. On this episode, we're excited to have Dr. Michael Maria Delgado. We'll be discussing the science behind cats and their behavior, how to better understand them, and how you can give you and your cat the fear-free lives you deserve. We all love our cats, but we don't always understand them. That's why I wanted to talk to Michael, who I consider to be the ultimate cat guru, in terms of what makes a cat a cat, and how we can best understand them and meet them where they're at. With that said, Michael, first of all, what would you say is a cat? This sounds like a very philosophical question, because um, obviously there's... There's the species, right, um, the cat, um, who we live with. Many of us um, share our lives with them. Maybe we don't understand them. Um, maybe we love them. Maybe we don't. But um, really, I mean, if you think about, like, kind of the how cats came to be part of our lives, they're a species that took advantage of an opportunity, which is, you know, humans were becoming more agrarian and starting to settle, um, had food stores that attracted rodents, and that then attracted cats. Um, And along the way, kind of cats aligned themselves to an extent with humans. They became um, friendlier, more um, trusting, more tolerant, and then became um, a a species we wanted to spend time with, that we became attached to for various reasons. I mean, they're beautiful, they're, um, they're fascinating, they're fun. And then we can kind of think about like, What makes a cat a cat? Well, they're a solitary hunter. That's a huge part of who they are um, and what dictates a lot of their instincts and behaviors. Um, They're a socially flexible species, so they can live without human support, but they obviously also can benefit from humans. Um, They can enjoy living with other cats, but they don't always. Um, And then we can look at kind of just more the, the physical, like things about them that I find cool, like their grace and just that they're a little bit mysterious. There's always a question mark that I think even for someone like myself who uh, might be a, a cat guru, um, I definitely don't pretend that I, I know every single thing about cats. There's always something new to learn and there's always um, a surprise around the corner. Oh, I can completely relate with that. I think in anything with the animals, it's like it's continually evolving, you're continually learning. And I love that there's so much more research done now where we are actually being able to validate a lot of things that maybe we thought or even being able to find out just new lines of thought to kind of displace some of those myths that maybe we've believed for so many years. So a question I have is you were, you were talking about with cats evolving, it sounds like it was a fairly similar process. Well, a little different, but similar to that of a dog and how a dog evolved from a wolf. Like how did a cat, what cat type did cats actually evolve from? And was that process similar to that of a dog where the physical changes and personality changes also evolved with that? Yeah, so cats' closest living um, relative slash ancestor is the African wildcat. And if you were to see an African wildcat, you might be um, surprised at how similar um, our domestic cats look and behave to that species. There are some differences, but um, really, I think one of the, well, there's a few differences between how we domesticated dogs and how we domesticated cats. And one is the timeline, right? So 
Um, cat domestication has been much more recent, so there's there's been much less kind of um, muddling with the the original um, design, right? So we haven't we haven't changed cats as much as we have dogs. Um, we certainly have many fewer cat breeds, and if you look at the physical form of all of the different cat breeds, it's much less extreme than in dogs, right? You can look at a a Chihuahua and a Great Dane, and those are both still dogs. We don't have those extremes in domestic cats at this stage. Um, the other thing is that, you know, the process of, of dog domestication it has been, I think, much more a co-domestication almost. Like there's been a co-evolution. I think humans have adapted to dogs, um, maybe not as much as dogs have adapted to humans, but there's there's been, I think, um, much more um, kind of intense selection for certain things that, that humans like. So when we look at dogs, we see facial expressions that remind us of a human smile. We see uh, much more attentiveness to human behaviors and gestures. Not that, that cats can't do that as well, but um, we've also, with dogs, bred them for very specific jobs, like pointing and herding and guarding. And we have not done that with, with cats, really. Um, you know, cats happen to, to hunt small rodents, which humans appreciate, but we actually didn't really need them for that because we already had um, ratters. You know, we had dog, dog breeds that could kill small rodents. We had ferrets who could kill small rodents. So in, much, um, in many ways, cats have, have benefited more from the human-cat relationship than maybe we have, which is very interesting because basically we've allowed cats to worm their way into our lives um, without expecting too much in return. Um, the, the flip side of that is that we haven't changed them that much. So their behaviors are very similar to their wild relatives. I mean, they look like them and to a large extent, they, they still have retained a lot of those um, wild instincts. And I think some of us like cats because of that. And some people like cats despite that. <laughs> and um, <laughs> that really, I think, depends partly on your mindset and um, and what kinds of um, situations you might be experiencing with your cat. Um, so in what ways can who a cat is as a species create conflict between yeah. people and their cats? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and really, again, getting back to that idea that we have not changed their behavior very much. So to an extent, we've kind of taken a wild animal and made them a little bit cuddlier and then said, hey, live with me, sit with me on the couch and expected them to just be like, okay, cool. And, you know, I think people do have a hard time stepping out of the human experience, right? So when we look at a cat, maybe we see a small dog or our expectations are you will behave like a small dog or maybe our expectations are you experience the world like I do. Why aren't you behaving like I would, right? So we're, we're then projecting human experiences and emotions on them. And what that does is it, it, it stops us from respecting who cats are as cats and what their natural instincts and behaviors are. So as a result, we do see a lot of behavior problems in cats and, and a lot of cat owners report that they have behavior problems in their cats, whether or not that's a, maybe a, a serious problem to them. Maybe they, they, you know, yes, my cat is annoying. Maybe my cat wakes me up at four in the morning, but I'm willing to live with it versus someone who's like, yeah, my cat is, um, is not pleasant to live with. And maybe my cat's going to end up in an animal shelter if I don't, you know, come up with a solution to these behavior problems. But um, because we don't understand like natural cat behaviors, such as how cats would eliminate um, what they prefer when it comes to elimination, 
then we end up with litter box problems uh, because we don't recognize that scratching is a natural behavior. Maybe we don't provide the right scratching posts for our cats and now they're scratching the couch and we're upset about that. If we don't understand their natural activity patterns and needs, then we have a cat who's waking us up at four in the morning or is engaging in attention-seeking behavior at other times because they're bored. We also don't always um, understand that they have social needs. And so when you don't understand what their natural behaviors are, you don't know how to provide for those behaviors. And I think um, another tricky thing about cats is that people have a hard time reading their body language. They find them mysterious. Um, I talked about dogs having that smile and those expressions. We've selected dogs for um, maybe a more complex facial musculature that cats don't have. And as a consequence, when you look at a cat, maybe you see a blank face, um, you don't see an emotion, and then you start projecting emotions or your expectations on your cat instead of trying to understand the subtleties of their body language. So there's there's lots of things that can sadly go wrong between humans and cats. It doesn't have to be that way, but um, but it does. They're not a low maintenance pet like they often get described as. Yeah. So so with that, so are cats really a, a solitary animal? Are they super independent? They don't suffer from separation anxiety. Those are some things that people may say about a cat. What is the real truth behind that? The real truth is that they're a solitary hunter. So they hunt alone. They um, they hunt very small prey that they, they eat alone. Um, that has nothing to do with their social needs with humans, right? Or with other cats. Um, so we call them um, socially flexible um, or facultative, which is just the idea is that they have the ability to survive without human assistance, right? And they also don't need other cats except to mate and reproduce and create lots of babies and pass their genes on. But um, at the same time, um, we see that there is this flexibility and that can be influenced by um, their socialization when they're young. It can be influenced by their genetics. It can be influenced by the kinds of experiences they have with people and other animals. And yes, cats can be highly social. They can need lots of attention. Um, they don't want to necessarily be left home alone all the time with a bowl of food and think that's like an okay life for them. Um, so, so yeah, I think, and yes, they can experience separation anxiety. I think, you know, until recently, we didn't even maybe acknowledge that they could be attached to people to the point where they would experience um, grief or... Um, attachment or anxiety um, at the absence of their owners. So we are increasingly recognizing that um, cats are social. They're not a solitary species the way that they've been kind of described as in the past. I love that. I love how you described that part about them being a solitary hunter, but not necessarily a, a solitary species. And they are so incredibly social and, and can form those really deep bonds. And so what are some ways that we as people could change our mindsets, our thinking, or our behavior in a way that would actually better support our cats? I think the starting point is empathy and really also understanding like when you, when you adopt or however you acquire a cat, um, you made a choice to bring them into your life and they did not have a say in that. So we're the ones, we're the grown up in the picture, right? It's up to us to meet their emotional needs their job is not to be a stuffed animal for us or to even necessarily, um, you know, cuddle with us or the things that you kind of enjoy about having a cat. But it, it is like um, our responsibility to provide an environment for them that um, helps them be happy, helps them thrive as a cat and provides for their needs. And if we can have empathy when we're doing that, then we can find enjoyment in things that maybe don't don't benefit us directly. Right. So so it's not just about us. 
Um, I think the other thing is we have to be okay with having a little bit of mystery in that relationship because, like I mentioned, they're not as overt in expressing every single emotion. They can be subtle. People have a hard time reading them. So I think as far as just our mindset is concerned, it's like, okay, just let go of like whatever expectations or, you know, trying to understand every single, you know, people always ask me like, why does my cat do X, Y, or Z? And they're, they're very random behaviors. Often the answer is I have no idea. It probably either feels good or they've been rewarded for behavior in the past. Um, but there's not always an answer to every single question. And then again, thinking about the mindset, um, watching the language we use. When I worked in an animal shelter, it was very sad. A lot of people that worked in the shelter used, we had to always constantly try, try to educate people on the language they used to describe cats. So like fractious, mean, that cat's a jerk um, or worse. And using that kind of language does not help anybody. It doesn't help you understand what your cat's doing. It doesn't help other people understand like how to interact with a cat safely. So it's really important to like describe behaviors, what you're seeing, not your interpretation of what you're seeing. And I think um, once you've labeled a cat or labeled a behavior, then you've kind of narrowed down the possibility to try to understand things from your cat's perspective and why they're doing the things they're doing. Hmm. So instead of a fractious cat or a cat that's mean, like what are more common reasons why a cat may be acting in the way that they are or may be showing some of that aggressive behavior? And and what are some, perhaps along with that, I think sometimes people may miss the initial cues that are are the cat is using to try and tell the person to back off. And so they have to speak louder and louder up to the point where they are shouting and all out going into that physical altercation type of state. Like uh, what, what's really going on there? Yeah. And anybody who's been um, following fear free or listening to the podcast there, this uh, is not going to be a big surprise. FAS fear, anxiety, and stress. <laughs> um, yeah. When we see, aggression or, you know, even the term aggression, I, I'm not a fan of, right? So we're not, again, that's not describing behavior. So when we see biting, scratching, hiding, hissing, um, any other signs of, you know, what I would recognize as, as stress or distress, um, there's, there's almost always um, fear, anxiety, or stress underlying those behaviors. So um, it's a cat responding to their environment, um, responding to threats in their environment, responding to a lack of control in their environment, um, that leads them to show those behaviors. And once you understand that the cat's not being mean, the cat is afraid, the cat is feeling threatened, um, you're doing something that makes the cat feel threatened, then you can, again, it gets to that point of empathy. Like this is, this is not something the cat is doing to you. This is something the cat is doing to protect themselves, to try to cope with their environment and things that are not meeting their needs in their environment. So I, I do think that that recognition can really kind of flip a switch for a lot of people and hopefully help them have more compassion and, um, and be more inspired to change their behavior to help their cat have better behavior. So what is a common misconception that people have about cats? Oh gosh. <laughs> um, certainly we talked about one, which is that cats are antisocial, right? That's a, that's a huge misconception. Um, I think, um, 
forgetting, okay, we talk a lot about cats being predators, right? I even started off with, with you know, who are cats? They're, they're a hunter, right? They're a predator, but they're also prey species. And so when you recognize that they're what we call mesopredators, so they're not at the top of the food chain, they're in the middle, um, it makes more sense why fearful um, behaviors are hiding, um, self-protective behaviors are instinctive for cats and why they need to have hiding spaces and um, the ability to remove themselves from things that scare them and that, that helps them cope, help, it's good for their mental health to be able to hide if they need to. Um, I, one of my least favorite things is when a cat is like very outgoing and gregarious, um, when people say, oh, he's just like a dog. <laughs> because um, again, we're, we're not kind of understanding the complexity of cats and the, the range and their behavior and that, um, you know, no cats being, being friendly and, um, and outgoing is a sign of a well-socialized cat who probably also had a little genetic boost from having bold parents or confident parents. So um, I think the other thing is um, recognizing again that they have social needs and you can't just leave a cat home alone for five days with a big bowl of food. And I've sadly talked to many, many cat owners who have done that and as a result have behavior problems they come home to a cat who's um, maybe eliminated on their bed or um, over-groomed themselves because um, of a failure to recognize that, that cats have social needs and they need those needs met on a daily basis. Absolutely. I, I know that as a trainer, one of my favorite things to do is to go into a home and maybe I'm there for training a dog or maybe looking at, at uh, work a lot with miniature pigs. <laughs> so, uh, so we may be working with them, but it's so fun to be able to work some with the cats because a lot of times the cats just join in naturally and they want to be a part of the session. And it's so neat because a lot of times they just kind of watch what I'm doing with the other animal. And it's just like, they pick it up on their own sometimes just by the observation, or maybe we run through it once or twice and it's like, man, they get it so fast. And it always impresses people. But like, what do you think? Do you think cats are an intelligent species? And like, how do you think that maybe we underestimate them in that way? Yeah. The, the question of intelligence is a, is a very, interesting one. When I was doing my dissertation for my PhD, I studied squirrels. And so I would always get questions about like, are squirrels smart? And then, you know, working with cats, you know, are cats smarter than dogs? Are dogs smarter than cats? And I really don't think about animal intelligence that way. The way I think about animal intelligence is that every species has evolved to be very good at something, right? That helps them survive. And um, for humans, it's being social, right? Like we, we're very dependent on social interactions. That's how we've been so successful. Um, for cats, it is really all about their life as a predator. They're very good at predation. And, you know, when I was studying squirrels, it was all about being being able to remember where they store their nuts, right? <laughs> so, like, um, things that humans are not necessarily good at. I can't catch a mouse with my bare hands. Um, I can't remember where I buried something in the backyard. But, um, you know, other species are really good at those things. So, so it's not a contest or a competition. It's really about, like, what is this species good at? What have they evolved to do? What's been important for them to survive during the evolution? or domestication of this species, um, what's, what's helped them thrive? And for cats, it has been being able to um, be that solitary hunter that can be self-sufficient. And um, so, you know, that said, yes, cats can learn things just like any other species can. Um, we recognize that positive reinforcement is a very effective tool for helping cats um, learn specific things but yeah they, they learn just like um, any other species things that are rewarding and motivating to them will increase the chance of them performing certain behaviors in the future they learn those associations quickly 
Um, and we have to be aware of that too, right? Because if a cat has a negative experience, um, they become afraid or stressed around something, it's not gonna take more than one or two negative experiences to um, possibly create a, a lifelong um, challenge for them to overcome. So that can be a bad experience with a person or a new animal in the home or the vacuum cleaner. Um, those fears can, can be imprinted very quickly. So we have to be aware of that. But when it comes to training them to do tricks, like you mentioned, when you go to someone's house and you demonstrate for them, like, yeah, your cat can learn how to sit in five minutes or your cat can um, learn to high five, or you can use these training techniques to help your cat accept um, medication or having their nails trimmed. You know, these tools work very well with cats. We just have to recognize that Maybe the intrinsic motivation to please, I don't know, like this is just, you know, like as someone who's much more experienced with cats and dogs, you know, it does seem like, yeah, dogs will just kind of do stuff, you know, to make people happy. I don't know if that's that's true, but that's kind of what it looks like, right? You're like, oh, we just, you know, the dogs like are very much more, I think, um, sensitive to what the human wants or is, is doing in certain ways. Cats are going to have to up the ante a little bit. Like they're going to want that like super jackpot treat. They're going to want something really delicious. They want, um, they, they want something in exchange, I think, to an extent. But that said, I mean, I've seen cats that are just very driven to engage with their environment and enjoy the game of trying to figure out what the human is trying to get them to do. So um, I think we have to recognize that they're all individuals. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I've met a cat that you couldn't train to do something that, you know, was fun as long as it was fun. Um, so yeah, I, I do enjoy, um, you know, certainly working with clients. I, I often encourage them to do a little bit of basic, you know, trick training with their cats. And depending on their needs, maybe really focusing on practical things like getting their cat to go in their carrier and see it as a safe space or, again, building up tolerance for certain types of handling that might help the cat in the future, like if they're going to need medication or grooming. But um, it really depends on the, on the owner. I think for cat owners, it can be a different mindset in training. Like, um, I think, you know, for many years, I, I, you know, I kind of was like, well, if I wanted to train an animal, I'd have a dog and not cats, right? But then you kind of see like, oh, it's, it's really about um, helping the animal be a good companion and helping them have better skills to, to cope with being a pet, which I think can have a lot of stressors, um, just for the reason we talked about, like not meeting their basic needs or, um, you know, perhaps the stress of confinement with other animals. So sometimes giving them those skills can, can help them be a better, happier pet. So you mentioned how cats learn really well through positive reinforcement. So bringing in those different rewards that they want, like what are some ways, so for someone that maybe isn't super excited about teaching their cat to high five or do some fun tricks, why should they still be invested in how their cat learns and in just being aware of their cat's learning in their everyday experiences or some of those needs, as you mentioned, like getting in the carrier, going to the vet or any of those handling things they might need to do? Yeah, I think we're training whether or not we're consciously training, right? So we see um, people um, inadvertently reinforcing behaviors they don't like. So an example would be your cat scratches the couch, you yell at your cat, maybe you chase them away. Well, your cat's very, you know, maybe very playful and wants attention more than they want the like satisfaction of scratching. They're like, oh, I got you to look at me. And um, now it's a game. So when they want your attention, you're working on your computer, you're on a Zoom meeting, they go over the couch, they start scratching, you're like, uh, 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 you know, you're like, get down from there, or like, stop it. And your cat's like, ooh, I got you to look at me, right? So, so there's that aspect, which is like, again, we're always training 
we want to be in control of what we're training and how we're training. And we want it to be, again, um, based in um, science, based in promoting welfare, and based in maintaining that human-animal bond. And that's why I recommend positive reinforcement training, is because we know it's effective, and we know that there's no fallout. Um, yeah, maybe punishment would work. Maybe the squirt bottle will stop the behavior in the moment, but what are the side effects of that? Well, now your cat's afraid of the squirt bottle, they're irritated with you, and as soon as you turn your back, they're doing the behavior you didn't want them to. So we're not promoting effective behavior change. And just to give an example of like how, you know, well, okay, people love the squirt bottle, right? Like they, they really are very attached to this as a, as a way to change their cat's behavior. Um, and, you know, it doesn't actually have to be a punishment. So as an example, um, my cat, one of my cats, she loves cat grass. Um, it's like her favorite thing. And when I um, bring out the cat grass, I'll often freshen it a little bit with um, with spray bottle with water. So she actually comes running when she hears the spray bottle because she associates it with the presence of cat grass, which is like her favorite treat. So, you know, it just demonstrates like how arbitrary it is. Like um, these these tools, um, they they one are not great for um, you know as I like to say, spray bottle is for watering plants, not for punishing your pets. Um, so, you know, it, it also just demonstrates like all of these things are just learned by association, right? So you have a positive experience with something, then you come running the spray bottle. Um, other people use a spray bottle because they think it's going to like, you know, make their cat stop doing something annoying. But, um, you know, it, it isn't, it's not an effective punishment tool. And um, again, for some cats, it's actually positive. <laughs> So you you touch on some of the the ways that people may try and get their cat to stop doing something. So using a squirt bottle, I think another thing that's pretty common are like scat mats or the one like the the ones that might shock the cat if they get on them. What are some better ways to stop some of those behaviors that we don't like, whether, you know, maybe it's the cat scratching, the cat is getting up on surfaces that the person doesn't want the cat on. Uh, so for those, those common issues that people may use those deterrents, like what, are, what is a better approach to use instead? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I, I don't support using um, aversive methods for training for various reasons. I mean, one of, those, one of those reasons is just that we know they're not as effective as positive reinforcement training, right? Like if we look at the science, we know that um, that we can train animals to do what we, what we want or to, to do the desired behavior without using these tools that have um, potential really negative ramifications. For example, if your cat is jumps on the counter and they get shocked, um, and you happen to be in the room, or the family dog is in the room, the cat may not associate the sensation of shock with what they just did, but with what's around them. They're, they're picking up what's on the in the environment, and for all they know, the dog made the shock happen, right? And so now they're afraid of the dog, or maybe they're going to swat at the dog, and now that relationship is fractured. Um, you know, and I think thinking about who cats are as a species, you know, we have we have obviously like strong bonds with our individual cats, but as a species, I'd say, you know, there's to an extent they can survive without us. And so that relationship might be a little tenuous. And so when you start um, creating aversive experiences for your cat, they're going to feel less trusting. It only takes one or two negative experiences to really um, kind of ingrain that feeling of fear or um, negativity that can be associated with the people they live with or the environment that they're in. So again, it's really like trying to understand why is the cat doing this behavior? 
what is the need? What is the motivation? How can we address that in another way without using um, negative experiences that can have um, emotional fear uh, fallout? We can end up with um, animals that have what looks like some kind of neuroses, right? They now have um, fear that um, they could be shocked at any time. They could um, touch something and have an unpleasant sensation. And so, as you can imagine, if you, I mean, I had a client once, they had shock mats all over their house. I was like, where can this cat actually go where they feel safe? Like, how can they even know now what's safe and what's not safe? Because all of these experiences they, ha they have were leading them to, to experience um, this painful sensation. So, um, so, you know, we really don't, we don't want our pets to be walking around constantly feeling stressed. Now I get it, like people are like, well, I don't want the cat doing X, Y, or Z. But again, you have to understand that when you choose to live with a companion animal, that, that they do have some basic needs. Um, these are behavioral needs and they have environmental needs. And so it's our responsibility kind of gets back to that idea. Like we're the grown up here. We chose to bring um, a cat into our house. Um, you know, it's, just as important to as providing them with food and water is providing them with a clean litter box, providing them with an appropriate scratching post, providing them with a cat tree and enrichment, things to do, things to keep them busy. And so punishment is, I think, um, maybe on a visceral level, we feel like we did something because the cat then jumped off the counter, but we're not seeing the, the kind of um, fallout that comes afterward when we're, we're now increasing their, their fear, we're increasing their, um, we're decreasing their sense of safety and control in their environment. And we're also like decreasing their opportunities to engage in natural behaviors. Mm, really good points there. So speaking of training and learning, if we flip it around and our cats were to teach us some behaviors as humans, what do you think a few key behaviors cats would actually want to teach their humans would be? I think number one would be training us how to interact with pet cats um, in a way that they enjoy. So we know from research, well, well, one, okay, cats are cute, they're soft, they purr. We want to touch them all the time, right? Um, it can be very hard to resist. Um, you go to someone's house and they have a cat. Who I love cats. I know cats. Like, this cat's going to love me. I, you know, run over to the cat, start, you know, that's, mm, the cat's like, no, like, what, who are you, right? Cats need, need time. They need, um, they need space, but probably most importantly, they want to be in control. So of the interaction, we know from research that when humans play hard to get, so if you sit back and let the cat approach you, rather than walking up to the cat and starting to pet them right away, um, when you sit back and let the cat approach you, they're more likely to interact with you longer. It's going to be a more positive interaction and they're more likely to interact with you in the future. So, so that's one thing. The other is we know from two studies now that cats can be very particular about where they like to be petted and where most cats like to be petted is where they have scent glands on the, um, the face. So the forehead, the cheeks, the chin, those are places that universally most cats enjoy handling. The rest of the body is a big question mark and can be very much up to that individual cat. But um, these two studies showed that the base of the tail and the belly were overall cat's least favorite places to be petted. So especially when you're interacting with a cat you don't know, you should never start with handling them in those areas. Um, sure, I've had cats who liked belly rubs, um, but I would not start with a new cat petting, you know, petting them on the belly. So I think, um, yeah, 
learning where cats like to be petted. And then I think the other thing is like cats as a species um, socially tend to prefer high frequency, low intensity interactions. And so for them, they would like to come, like maybe if you work from home, maybe they'll come in the office once an hour, like, you know, take one or two pets and then go off and do something else. Like that's very much in tune with their natural interaction style. For us, we like to have a love fest. We want to put them on our lap. We want them to sit there for an hour while we watch a TV program and pet them the whole time. That is a lot to ask of a cat. So I think um, the big thing is they would love it if we would learn how to handle them. Uh, number two, I think they would love it if we learned how to keep the litter box meticulously clean. Um, I can't tell you how many people I work with who have litter box problems in their home. When we dig a little deeper into how they're maintaining the litter box, they're not doing a great job. So the litter box needs to be scooped ideally twice a day. We should be using a soft, unscented, sandy litter. The litter boxes should be um, accessible, um, but safe. So cats don't need privacy, they need safety. So it's, it's not the same as us, right? Like we want a door that locks. Cat wants to know who's around the corner. So they wanna be able to see who's around them. Um, they don't necessarily wanna be in a high traffic area, but they don't want the litter box way out of the way in the garage. And um, yes, they want it scooped. They want it scooped a lot. Um, and then I'd say number three is they would love it if people learned how to play with them with interactive toys. Um, cats need exercise. They need outlets for that natural predatory behavior. Um, I think sometimes people don't know how to move the toy or they don't understand that cats do get bored of the same toy. So we do have to kind of switch out the toys a lot, try new toys um, and yeah, keep them, keep them engaged. Um, and the other thing too, is if you think about how cats hunt, um, they do a lot of stalking. So they're not like running around for hours, right? When they're hunting a mouse they they sneak up on the mouse or the bird. There's a lot of like kind of cognitive effort and, um, they take their time and then there's kind of that rush of activity. So when we play with our cats, we can kind of think of that too. It doesn't have to be a 20 minute marathon for, for all cats. I mean, kittens kind of need 20 minutes of high intensity exercise, but for an adult cat, it can be a very short play session that involves a lot of stalking and then not maybe as much running around, but um, kind of understanding how cats like to play. And yeah, like I said, I think they would like it if they got a little bit of play time every day. Back to the litter box. When you say that cats want safety and not necessarily privacy, what, what would that look like in terms of uh, the right litter box for a cat? Yeah, I mean, certainly cats prefer a larger box. Um, I always recommend an open box so they can see what's, what's going on and not get trapped by another animal in the house. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you how many clients they'll have like a, you know, 2,500 square foot house and they're like, I can't possibly fit a second litter box in this house. And I'm like, okay. Let me, let me take a look around and I'll find some spots for you. Um, you know, I think areas that are, are good for litter boxes depend partly on the level of traffic in the house. So in my house, there's two adults, uh, me and my boyfriend. We have two litter boxes in our living room in two opposite corners of the living room. Um, so we live with the litter boxes and then we have one in one of our bathrooms and then we have one in a walk-in closet. So um, all of those spaces allow, um, I have three cats, so that's why I have four litter boxes. Um, all of the, all of the litter boxes allow, um, a vantage point where the cat can see if someone's coming in, we use large storage bin boxes. So they're, um, quite large and, um, scoop them twice a day. Um, but, but yeah, I think the idea of safety is, um, 
is a place where the cat, again, can see if anyone's approaching, not near something like loud and scary. So I don't recommend putting the litter box like next to the washing machine or in the garage if cars are coming in and, and going out on a regular basis. Um, probably not next to like your loud water heater if it, it's old and bangs and makes scary noises. Um, and probably not in the highest traffic areas of the house, so probably not right by the front door or anything. But, um, you know, like I said, if I come to your house, I can find a, a nice corner for you to, to tuck a few litter boxes into. Um, but, you know, which brings up another thing is like, you know, separating the litter boxes so they should be in separate areas so that the cats don't have to um, kind of go side by side. It's kind of like the difference between a public restroom with stalls and a private bathroom, right? So if you put all the litter boxes side by side, you're, you're kind of in that. Um, public bathroom with stalls situation. And if you have any tension between your cats, you don't want them to feel, um, you certainly don't want them to feel tension around going to the bathroom. You want them to use the litter box successfully. So you touched some earlier on the emotions that cats experience. What are the different emotions that, that you believe cats feel? And like, how would that be similar or different to that of people? Okay, yeah, we talked about like the negative emotions, right? We talked about fear, anxiety, and stress. And I, I don't want people to think that cats don't experience positive emotions. But yeah, cats, um, I, I think at this stage, you know, those of us that have studied animal behavior and um, certainly neuroscience, all of those fields have increasingly recognized that animals have emotions. Um, if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, why would it make sense that there would be continuity in our bodies, but not our brains? Our brains are part of our, part of our bodies and our emotions are controlled by structures in the brain, right? Like it's, it's chemicals. And um, that isn't to say that, that you know, our, our companion animals or wild animals experience emotions just like we do. We don't know, we'll never know. Um, we have language and so that probably does mean that we experience emotions a little bit differently because we have an internal dialogue and sometimes an external one too, right? But there's there's just some differences there. But that doesn't mean that um, other animals don't experience um, emotional states. They just might be different. Um, so I think my approach is always to err on the side of what best preserves an animal's welfare. And it is better for cat welfare for me to assume that they have um, complex emotions than for me to assume they don't. Um, so I'd rather err on the side of um, of assuming that they can experience fear and distress, that they can experience some form of love and pleasure, than to assume they do not. Um, because ultimately, it doesn't matter what my beliefs are, but it does matter how I treat them and what my behaviors are and how I take care of them. So I like Dr. Pongsep's model of animal emotions, which kind of involves um, seven states and the associated neurological system. So there's the seeking system, which is all about acquiring food and, um, you know, exploring the environment. There's care, which represents social interactions and um, maybe maternal care or, or being cared for. Um, play, which is you now related to predation and an outlet for that behavior. Um, we've got lust, which is really all about reproduction and that drive to reproduce. Um, and then there are the, the, the negative emotions, which would be fear. Um, sadness, which would be experiencing loss, and then anger, which is, or rage. So, um, so yeah, I think that, um, you know, we've got strong evidence that animals experience those emotional states. Um, and if you think about what are emotions, they are, um, they're bodily sensations and behaviors and um, internal states that probably evolved that, to allow us to do things in our environment, to keep us safe or to um, help us survive. 
And so when you think of it in that sense, then it makes sense that, that animals would, would have emotions, at least to some extent. And, you know, maybe not exactly like we do, but, um, but we would expect that that would be falling on the spectrum. And yes, they have emotions. So when we look at cats, the domestic short hair is the most popular type of cat. Like, how did that come about? Yeah, so if you look at, again, their closest living relative is the um, African wildcat. They look exactly like a domestic short hair cat, a little, you know, maybe slightly more um, wild. But um, so that's the that's the base from which all other cat breeds came from and all other features. So we've got the domestic short hair, we've got the domestic long hair, and then we get into like kind of the more um, fancy breeds that, that definitely look different than um, than an African wildcat, but but that's the base. So that's um, that's the the foundation of the breed. Um, sorry, the foundation of the species. Um, so we would expect that to be the most common um, representation of cats. And then everything else has kind of come either through natural selection for certain traits. So like maybe for cats who lived in a cold environment, it made sense for them to have a thicker coat. Maybe it made sense for them to have a longer coat. So cats that happen to by chance have a slightly longer coat would have a better chance of surviving the winter and making babies next year and those babies also have long coats and then you know in environments where maybe it made sense to have a darker coat because maybe that protects you from predation um, those traits could evolve right and then when you introduce human selection where we're actively breeding cats for certain physical traits that's where the, the breeds arise so when you look at the physical traits of cats so maybe they were bred to have a flatter face or certain coloring how how do the different breeds impact how the cat behaves and what their personality might be like or their how their needs may be different from a domestic short hair or long-haired cat yeah it's a great question and it comes up a lot and i'd say that overall cats have been bred for physical traits not behavioral traits right so Sometimes behavioral traits come along for the ride, but um, when you look at cat breeds, they are primarily bred to um, to their morphology and not for personality. Um, so we don't expect huge differences based on breed and behavior. Um, and in fact, the way we tend to talk about cat breeds is that there's more differences within breeds than between. And what that means is, for example, if you have um, a Maine Coon cat um, or you have a population of Maine Coon cats, we expect some of them to be shy and some of them to be bold, right? So we've got variability. Not all Maine Coon cats are going to be exactly the same in their boldness. Um, and then if we look at um, Siamese cats, we'll see the same thing. We see some that are shy, some that are very bold. And so um, so we, we see more variability within that Siamese breed than we would say, if you look at Siamese average boldness and Maine Coon cat average boldness, they're actually not that different. So. Um, so we don't see, um, see it's going to be subtle. And I'm not saying that there aren't differences, like asking anybody with a, you know, a Siamese cat. Yeah, they're probably very vocal <laughs> compared to um, other cats. But that doesn't mean there aren't very vocal domestic short-haired cats or very vocal um, uh, Maine Coons. And so, and so this is further complicated by the fact that we just don't have all the um, like genetic information yet comparing um you know, breeds and behavior or looking at the genetics of behavior. Genetics of behavior is very complicated. Usually things are not controlled by one gene. They're controlled by many genes or shaped by many genes. And then you have the the effect of socialization, which is really critical to cats. Like it's important for them to have positive experiences between two and nine weeks of age. And that can have a huge impact on their personality later. So we can't, it's not just breed. There's There's the genetics, which includes the breed. 
there's the early environment, and then there's also the current environment. So if a cat's in, a, in an environment that meets their needs and helps them thrive, then they're going to probably be a different cat than if they're in an environment that stresses them out. So what about coloring of a cat? Like, I know that, that for me, I often hear, oh, I love tuxedo cats, or I love orange cats, or black cats are my thing. Like, are there differences in personality depending upon the coloring of the cat? Yeah, I mean, again, we don't have the research to really say. Um, and we know that, again, the genetics of, of coloring can be complicated, and we don't, we don't know what comes along for the ride. Um, I mean, certainly we know that like 80% of orange cats are male and 99.99% of tricolored cats like tortoiseshells and calicos are female. So, um, you know, people have their own experiences with cats. So when I worked in the animal shelter, certainly I had people who like had always had uh, orange cats. And when they come to the shelter for a new cat, they want an orange cat, right? They have had a a long history of personal experiences. Um, Now, granted, even if they've every cat they've had has been orange, um, they've probably had five to ten cats, right? So that's a pretty small sample size to make a judgment like, yeah, all orange cats are nice. Um, so I did do some research um, back in 2012 um, where we looked at people's perceptions of cats based on coat color, and we did find some differences where people did tend to associate um, more positive traits to orange cats and more negative traits to tricolored cats. Um, but again, it's hard to say, is that because they have a bias about the sex of the cat, where they think male cats are friendlier? That's something I hear a lot. Um, and they think female cats are, are more independent or aloof. Um, and there's been another study out of UC Davis that, um, again, supported that people believe there are differences. Um, but there's not a lot of research actually looking at um, individual cats um, like in a more objective manner. So, um, and certainly not looking at their genetics and associating it with behavior. So I'd say too early to say conclusively, I think people have a lot of um, personal preferences and probably again, experiences that shape their perceptions, but it's hard to say whether or not those perceptions are based in reality. Are, are there any other research findings or studies that you've done or that you've seen recently that, that may shape how people interact with their cats or how they might view their cats in a different way? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely, um, I'd say, uh, more a, a growing body of research done by like Dr. Kristen Vitale, who's looked at the human-cat um, relationship and, and people's attachments to cats, and demonstrating that cats do they do love humans and they form attachments. Um, we have seen um, other research showing that, um, for example, the the slow blink is a great way to communicate with cats, and so that's just closing your eyes very slowly and kind of averting your gaze slightly. So um, that makes us less threatening. But what the research shows is that cats actually respond in kind to that kind of handle, um, kind of interaction. So they they slow blink back, which is a sign of relaxation and and happiness. Um, we also know that cats look to humans for um, safety signals. So there was a study um, looking at what's called social referencing, where if there was a, a scary stimulus in the environment, the cat would look to the human to kind of get a sense of like, is the human reacting like this is scary or not? And so when the human was acting relaxed and, and not scared, the cat was more calm than if the human was giving off signals that they were afraid. So we know they pick up on our emotional states as well. So I think there is um, really, really nice, um, you know, growing body of, of research. Um, you know, doing research with companion animals is challenging, um, especially if you don't want to work with captive animals and you don't want to do invasive research. So I think most of us who have worked with cats try to get around um, kind of the 
I mean, maybe the negative, um, I mean, there's reasons that people have negative conceptions about some of that research. Um, if you love a species, you don't want to hurt them. You don't, um, you want to study them in the environment they're comfortable in. So a lot of people have really um, kind of pioneered like studying cats in the home environment so that we can um, understand them better without um, causing them stress. It's very hard to study cats in a laboratory and imagine that that's not um, a stressful experience or that we're going to see any kind of representative behavior in that environment. So, um, so I think, you know, there, there is, um, there's been a nice um, kind of shift in, in the animal research world to um, studying cats in more natural environments, natural to them, meaning the home <laughs> or maybe um, feral cats outside rather than in the laboratory. So when you were talking, you were, you were mentioning like how a lot of times we study cats in the home or in their natural environments. So I, with that, there are a couple of questions that I thought of. So when I talk to people, there are two common questions that I get, and maybe it's just random that I happen to get these, but I'd love to ask for your thoughts on them. So one common question is when I'm getting ready to leave and the suitcase comes out, a lot of times my cat will pee in the suitcase or pee on my clothes. What is that about? Yeah, that is your cat expressing um, their anxiety about your imminent departure because they've learned to associate the suitcase with um, with you being gone. So um, again, I think that's that's a behavior where people often misinterpret, right? They, the cat's being spiteful. And what we recognize now is that, um, no, the cat has learned to associate these certain cues with um, with something that is causing them anxiety, which is their, their human's departure. And so that requires us to recognize that, yeah, cats form attachments and that, yes, they can be upset when there's a disruption to their routine. We know cats are very much creatures of habit and they don't like changes to their routine. Um, so, so us being gone on vacation means someone strange is going to be coming into the house. Maybe they're feeding them at different times and that cat's regular source of companionship is, is going to be gone. So we can, um, you know, one, I think making sure that, that we have the cats that are set up for success and that we're maintaining the cat's routine to the extent possible and not again, just leaving the cat home alone for five days with a huge pile of food. That is not a good way to care for your cat. Um, and then we can also, you know, do some, um, what we call counter conditioning so that maybe the suitcase is associated with treats. Maybe we leave the suitcase out more often so it doesn't always predict the owner leaving town. So we're um, really decoupling the presence of the suitcase with, with the owner's travel um, to help kind of prevent that um, pre-travel stress that some cats experience. Really, really great tips. So another common one is the cat that attacks hands or feet. And so for some people, it's maybe walking and suddenly the cat may ambush them. Or I think even more commonly is when they're sleeping and the cat all of a sudden starts biting or attacking their feet. And so they may have struggles with being able to actually get enough sleep um, with their cat. What's going on there? Sure. Yeah, I mean, we do see those behaviors pretty regularly and almost always in young cats that are bored. So first of all is um, making sure that your cat has the physical exercise, mental stimulation, regular activity that they need to help prevent those behaviors. So, um, so yeah, getting out the, the wand toys, uh, maybe harness training them so they get a little safe outside time, um, making sure that they have things to keep them busy. 
um, because really what that is is just a misdirection of predatory behavior, right? Like your your ankles now look like potentially a rat or a bird, or um, you're laying in bed and you don't think you're moving, but you're blinking, or maybe your eyes are moving, you're in the dream state, and so you know your cat might find batting at your eyelashes very exciting, or maybe your hair's moving, you know, you roll over. So, um, you know, cats, especially when they are under-exercised, it's like anything that moves is fair game. So you become the closest thing to a prey animal that's in, in their environment. So we really just need to really increase their, their activity and send them to bed tired. So I usually recommend like a lengthy play session about an you know, hour before bedtime, feed them at the last meal of the day you know, as you're going to bed, and that will increase the chance that they'll sleep through the night. Um, you know, I have three young cats and my sleep is very important to me. My cats sleep through the night. They sometimes stay in the bed when I get up in the morning. They have no interest in being awake in the morning. So the other part is I'd say, um, also don't get up and feed your cat in the middle of the night if they do wake you up. Um, a lot of people do that and go back to bed and that trains the cat to train you to get out of bed and feed them. So true. So another kind of common, but also a surprisingly common question that I've gotten is the cat, when the person comes home, or maybe it's when they're, they, um, they are working at home, but then they finally sit on the couch, but the cat will come up and, uh, they describe it almost as like vampire sucking on their neck where they like to kind of, uh, like almost like kiss, but also like lick and suck on their neck. What is going on with that? (laughs) I mean, when cats are, are bonded with us, we see the same kind of behaviors they show with cats they're, they're bonded with, right? So when we have cats that are um, friends, they do a lot of what's called allo grooming, which the, the term allo means same. So it means you're grooming your same species. Um, so they groom each other. They lick, they bite, they nibble. Um, so we might see some of that, right? Where they're, they're just um, treating us like another cat they're close to. And so there's, there's some bonding involved in that, that co-grooming. Um, in the case of like sucking and nursing, then we might have a cat who is expressing, um, what we call it, an, it's a neoteny, meaning that they're retaining some, some behaviors from their infant or juvenile stages. So for example, kittens nurse on their moms to get milk. Um, there's kneading involved and sucking. And so um, probably partly through domestication and partly through spaying and neutering and just partly through like that own that individual cats um maybe experiences when they're young um for some individuals they are retaining behaviors of kittenhood and so they might be just um directing that behavior towards a human um in that case you can usually like um you know sometimes we might give them a food puzzle to kind of give them an outlet for oral behavior we'd always want to make sure that they have plenty of exercise and other things to do in the environment because in that case maybe the cat is overly dependent on their physical interactions with their owner to um give them all of their get all of their needs met basically so we want to make sure the cat has um a fully enriched environment so that they can um not just see the human as the only source of comfort and mental stimulation in the home. Um, some cats will use, you know, like a chew toy or something like that to um, provide them with an, with an outlet for oral behaviors as well. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I would, I would assess that one. So lastly, you talked about going into a home and you, you can find places to put litter boxes where people may say, oh, I have no room. What if you could go in and you have your magic wand and you could just wave it and the house would suddenly have these changes made. What are the common changes that you would want to make in most households? 
in order to better improve life for their cats. I really like the, um, the AAFP, which is the American Association of Feline Practitioners um, guidelines for the healthy feline environment. So we have five pillars. Um, pillar number one is um, safe hiding places. So making sure cats have um, places where they can hide if they need to. Pillar number two is multiple and separated resources. So making sure that you have um, resources in different areas, right? So if you have two cats, you have three litter boxes and they're in different spots. You have separate feeding areas. So you don't require cats to eat side by side or from the same bowl. Um, if you have one cat, that, that also means the food isn't next to the litter box, right? So we're, we're, we're letting the cats live in the house with us. They've got resources all over the house, um, scratching posts in different rooms. Um, number three, outlets for play and predation. I talked about that, like giving them opportunities to play on a daily basis. Uh, pillar number four is appropriate social interaction. So we talked about handling and training. Those are two examples of, of how we can have better um, social interactions with our cats. And then pillar number five is respecting their sensory experiences and, and specifically the sense of smell. So understanding that cats um, have a much better sense of smell than we do, and they might find certain odors, odors aversive. So like strong fragrances, um, like blade plugins, essential oils, those kinds of things can be very stressful to cats. Um, and, and if you also think about how important it is for them to deposit their scent around the house. So um, I mentioned scent glands on their face when they like to be, where they like to be petted. Um, they also rub those scent glands on corners and tables and laptops. Um, they scratch to deposit scent, not just to um, stretch their back muscles or condition their claws. Um, so, so also understanding that, that they have a, a very separate olfactory world from us that includes pheromones, which are species-specific chemicals that um, they can use to kind of send secret messages that we can't detect. Um, so that would be my magic wand, is to meet the, the requirements of the five pillars of a healthy feline environment. I love that, Michael. Well, I know I've read your book, Total Cat Mojo, with Jackson Galaxy. What are some other ways beyond that awesome book that people can find out more about you? Yeah, I blog about cats and science at whatyourcatwants.com. And from there, you can, um, yeah, I mean, if you if you Google me, you'll, you'll find me. Um, and I have a book coming out in 2024 um, called Play With Your Cat, which is going to be a deep dive into um, some of the things I talked about today, which is how to play with your cat to keep it happy. Um, and I'm on social media, so I'm on Instagram and Twitter. So, yeah, feel free to give me a shout out on the socials. Perfect, Michael. And I'd love to have you back when your book is out and be able to promote it and be able to feature more information about how to play with your cat, because I know that is a huge subject and we barely had a chance to even touch on that. So thank you so much. Any final words? Um, no, just, um, you know, again, respect your cat for who they are and have fun with them. Love that. Thanks, Michael. Thank you for joining us for Happy Paws. We hope you continue tuning in every two weeks as we explore more about your pets. Next time on Happy Paws, we're joined by Dr. Evan Enton, star of Evan Goes Wild and Wildlife Conservation Advocate. We discuss his work with both small animals and exotics, what drives his passion for his work, and how we can live our best fear-free lives with our pets. Make sure you subscribe to avoid missing out on any upcoming Happy Paws episodes. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you took a minute and left us a review. For more content like this and much more, visit us at fearfreehappyhomes.com. Our music is by 310. That's the number 3, the word 1, and the word O. Follow them on Instagram at 310official and listen to them on Spotify or wherever else you find your music.